internet was meant to democratise, well, everything. Content, ideas, you name it. But there is another edge to that sword, and it turns out we weren't really prepared for the very difficult-to-predict results. This week on Download This Show, a video game store, Wall Street, and the front page of the internet go to war. It's not totally clear who won that round. Plus, media companies want Google and Facebook to pay for journalism. The government is pushing legislation to make that happen. Google says it breaks the concept of a free searchable web and instead have proposed a new idea for journalism. But will it actually work and break the stalemate? Also on the show, in the age of fast information, why are email newsletters, of all things, making a comeback? Let's find out. This is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. My name is Mark Fennell and welcome to download this show. And welcome back to the show, Natasha Gilzo, tech, media and marketing reporter with the Australian Financial Review. Welcome back. Thank you. Thanks for having me again. Happy New Year to you. And also joining Natasha, we have Peter Mark, software developer and blogger. I love that you're bringing the word blogger back. I feel like we don't use that yeah, word enough. Yeah, it's time it came back. Yeah, that's right. I only use web blogs now because I like to make it retro. <laughs> You look them up on Yahoo Index. Sometimes even on Netflix. Oh, Netscape. I was going to say Netflix. <laughs> I meant to say Netscape. The joke only works if you say Netscape. Hey, uh, this week saw something of an epic battle between Wall Street and people on Reddit. And it's really a fascinating story that sits at the nexus of finance markets and technology. And I guess a form of activism in its own way it involves a... I guess a game store, literally called GameStop in the US. Uh, Natasha, can you explain to me the GameStop story? Where did it start? So GameStop is sort of the uh, American equivalent of EB Games. It's 400 physical stores where people used to go and, you know, get the latest Call of Duty or The Sims or whatever. Now, not so much because everyone just downloads games online or streams them directly. So it was a bit of an unloved company and a bit of an unloved stock. But a Reddit forum called Wall Street Bets, which has been very active for a long time, basically rallied together and rallied its internet community around this stock, encouraging people in the community to buy it, pushing the price up um, almost to 100 US dollars. It's down to 90 US dollars um, this morning, but making making crazy returns. And this was in response to the fact that GameStop was basically one of the most heavily shorted listed stocks, which means that a lot of hedge funds and a lot of other people were making bets that the stock price would actually go down from its already really low and kind of flatlining price. But yeah, it's been wild. It's been a wild ride to watch for everyone, not just investors, but just onlookers in general and what internet communities can create and do to financial markets these days. So there's two sides to this story. There's a, there's a financial side and a tech side. And I'll come back to you to talk a little bit more about what things like shorting actually are in a second. But Peter, what does this say about Reddit, right? So we've known, you know, Reddit talks about itself as the, the front page of the internet. Lots of internet culture emerges or at least passes through Reddit in its life. Why did that particular subreddit exist in the first place? What was its purpose? Yeah, so subreddits are a kind of a news site where the users vote on stories. So if somebody posts a link to something or just makes a post, it can get voted up and in popularity. And there's a Reddit forum for people who like betting on Wall Street called Wall Street Bets. Now, one of the administrators of that 
particular site whose name I can't fully say on the radio, DFing <laughs> Value, uh, is he's administrator of that group and he had GameStop uh, shares for some time, certainly at least a year. I went back through his history. So he has been gently pushing it, which of course is uh, self, uh, you know, he's motivated to do that. <laughs> but uh, there was an analyst at Citron Research on January the 22nd who basically predicted that GameStop was about to crash and, of course, as we found out, uh, some of the big funds had shorted GameStop. So he got together on the group and said, hey, look, you know, we all love GameStop. You know, I guess it's a bit of nostalgia mm. for gamers. Uh, this company is not in trouble, really. They did actually survive. You wouldn't think so, but they did survive through the pandemic. And he rallied everyone and said, come on, buy some stock and hold it and hold it so these funds will have to pay the penalty of shorting the stock, which is, it can be astronomical. In fact, I think they lost billions of dollars. And the, the forum actually has its own terminology. There's a thing called diamond hands, which is users who hold a stock, uh, who buy a stock and hold it regardless of what's going on. In fact, regardless of the craziness, you know, GameStop is now wildly overvalued in <laughs> PE terms. Yep. And there's other people who are called paper hands. I guess that means that they fold. So this Reddit community has been able to bring to bear a whole bunch of people, possibly for nostalgia reasons, uh, possibly because they, uh, they just want to stick it to the man. They want to stick it to the traditional Wall Street. And also there's a lot of criticism of traditional financial media Media. They're constantly saying, don't believe what you're seeing on the TV, you know, finance channels and things like that. So that's one side of it. The other side of it is that trading has got very cheap. So again, uh, apps like uh, Robinhood don't charge any fees. And that means that individual investors can easily and cheaply buy and sell shares. Definitely want to talk about Robinhood in a second, but there's a term that we've, uh, we've mentioned a few times in this, and I'm sure lots of people listening to this going, what is shorting? I know there was a movie called The Big Short, but exactly what is it? And I think it's central to understanding this. So, Natasha, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna pass this over to you, if not purely because you work for the Australian Financial Review, and it is keen to understand that basically when you're, when you're buying and selling stock on the stock exchange, sometimes you're betting that something will gradually improve over time. But then there's the opposite, where you can bet, in effect, that companies are going to fail. And that, that idea is central to this concept of shorting, isn't it? Yeah, there's different types of trades that you can make, and um, I guess short sellers, what they do is they scour the globe, not just US listed companies, but, you know, public companies in Australia or, you know, on the Tokyo Stock Exchange, different analysts or different investors roam the globe looking for companies that they think are overvalued or um, the share price will radically decline um, at some point. Um, and GameStop was one of those companies that short sellers had targeted. Um, they place uh, a sort of bet on the notion that the company's share price is going to dip. And if it does dip, then they make money. But if it rises, they lose a lot of money. They basically lose that bet um, that they've placed in shorting. You mentioned earlier, Peter, an app called Robinhood. Now, Robinhood has become, again, quite central to this story. It is an app where you can buy and sell stock, I assume. But mm. one of the things they did, I think, in response to this is they actually put limitations on, on rookie traders. Why did they do that? Yeah, so they they did run into problems. It's, it's a complicated arrangement. So these low-cost or, or fee-free uh, share trading apps 
do play some tricks. Now, it used to be that share trading was quite expensive. You would have a broker that you talked to on the phone and you'd be some sort of minimum fee. So really it was open to the wealthy only, people who were you know trading tens of thousands of dollars at a minimum. But these apps actually let you uh, trade you know, individual shares, quite small amounts. And I think the way it works is that they're using the data. So the data that they get about who's, you know, how many people are buying or selling and what share, what prices they're looking for, that's gold. And they're selling that data on to high frequency traders who can see a trend as soon as it occurs. And then they can get in and because they can trade much faster than the uh, the dumb money, as it's called, the individual punters, <laughs> they can take advantage of movements before other people actually see them. Of course, the free share market in, you know, information is generally uh, delayed. I even think it's even 20 minutes in Australia. So the, the, the dumb punter, the ordinary share trader has no chance of keeping up with what's actually going on. Now, Robinhood did run into some troubles. They, they do actually have to guarantee their share trades. And I don't uh, fully understand how it works, but it meant that they had to go and get more liquidity. They had to raise money to cover all of these trades in GameStop. And uh, what it meant was it's, at one point they actually stopped people from buying. They would let you sell, but they wouldn't let you buy anymore. And of course, users became outraged. But it turns out that's actually in their terms of service. In the agreement, the user agreement, it says we basically do best effort to do the trade you ask for. We don't guarantee it. So I think it's opened people's eyes to what these things actually do. They're not quite what you imagine that you would get in that, you know, if you were a wealthy investor with a big, uh, you know, uh, a share trader working for you. There is an argument, Natasha, that apps like Robinhood, and, and it, we should point out it's certainly not the only one in its category, because they enable much faster transactions from a wider demographic of people, they might actually contribute to a form of destabilisation or unpredictability to the markets. Do you think that argument holds, Natasha? I mean, it definitely democratises access to buying and shelling, um, selling shares. So it does open up markets to more people. And we don't really know what the result of that is. But, you know, in the purest sense, markets should be open to anyone who are willing to make a trade. So I don't think that's a reason um, for why these platforms shouldn't exist. Platforms like Robinhood is sort of the market leader, but there's also platforms like Stake. But I guess what we don't know is some of the impacts of the scale and speed and, you know, some of the micro trading that's happening on the platform. This is a new, uh, not, not an entirely new thing for financial markets, but it's the next stage for financial markets that in terms of the platforms themselves, combined with how social media communities, everything from Stockstream on Twitch to the subreddits that we've been discussing to FinTalk, um, Finfluencers on TikTok, these are uh, new entrants into both the trading world, but also the giving of advice around those trades. Um, so we don't fully know what's going to happen yet. GameStop was one interesting case study of something that can happen um, within this new world of how trading looks now. Yeah, so for for some years, um, uh, analysts have been doing sentiment analysis on Twitter, for example, to see what people are saying about uh, shares as a way of getting a heads up early. But this game has always been about information. My father used to trade shares. He would go off to uh, a nice lunch at a nice restaurant and he would come home and buy or sell. Now, I don't know what was going on, but obviously people talk <laughs> and people would say, watch out for this one or get out of that one or, you know, pick up this. So tips were 
were being given to people. And, of course, there have been newsletters. Remember, Rene Rifkin used to have a newsletter with stock tips in it. Now, there were some allegations, this is a long time ago, that he would pump and dump, that he would buy something, and then he would put it in his newsletter saying, this, this stock is about to go crazy. Other people would get in, and then he would sell. So it's all about information. And as Natasha says, I think making this more democratic and more open, perhaps by having it on public social media, has got to be a good thing but it is another shift in media, just like the news media, the traditional, you know, if you get a story in the Financial Review, in paper, on your doorstep in the morning, by the time you get that news, unfortunately, it's too old for you to make money out of it, really. Download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. Our guests are Natasha Gillizo from the AFR and blogger and software developer Peter Marks. Mark Fennell is my name and uh, the ongoing, I'm going to call it a war because I have a natural bias towards drama, the ongoing war between Facebook, Google and the Australian government slash the rest of the media world uh, has taken an interesting shift in the last seven days. We didn't get enough time to talk about this in the show last week, but I do think it's worth discussing now. Uh, Google have unveiled or at least reintroduced the concept of Google News Showcase. Does it solve any of the problems that the media have with the relationship between Facebook and Google and news? Well, no. I mean, what they're proposing is that there's a place that, uh, and I think it's going to be a native app on mobiles because a lot of people get their news through mobiles, and it would actually be curated by the, uh, the news publishers. Unfortunately, they've only signed up a few. I think they've got uh, the Sunday paper, they've got uh, the conversation and, you know, they're really pretty minor. They don't have uh, uh, Nine or, um, or uh, News Limited or anything, so they've got a bit of a problem there. But th- this new bargaining process where uh, the publishers can claim, can negotiate based on their costs, Google feels that's unfair and Google is trying to make the point that that uh, by charging to have links, as they call it, um, this will actually break the way the whole internet works. And as you said, the big threat is that they said, oh, we might have to take search out. I think this is a a false claim, really. Um, But I think the problem is that... uh, Gathering news, generating original news content is extremely expensive. And what Google does is they don't just have the link, they also have a short summary. And many people read the summary of the news on news.google and they don't bother clicking through to the actual original publishers and going to their paywall and then subscribing, which is what Google argues uh, there's the opportunity there. So uh, basically uh, people are getting the value of seeing a summary of the news and they're, they're not, none of that money is going back to the original publishers. So we are in a bit of a deadlock at the moment. Uh, Rod Sims of the ACCC says this isn't going to strip billions of dollars out of Google or Facebook. It's not going to cost them. Uh, Google's whole budget for this news initiative globally is a billion dollars. So by the time you look at how much Australia is at the market, there's probably not a lot of money there. So yeah, we're really stuck at the moment. It's going to be fascinating to see what happens. I think there's a lot of debate around some of the particulars of this argument. So I just want to kind of pick up on a few points of them. The the line that Google is executing at the moment is that um, what the media code currently, at least in its current form, lays out breaks search. And I think that's a really... I can only imagine how much time went into picking that phrase because it's interesting in the sense that I think what they're trying to say is search won't work after this is brought in. But actually what it really means is that conceptually it breaks what the idea of search is supposed to be, which is like we use an algorithm to find you the best thing and we present you the best thing. But it doesn't – like even if you accept that that's what's at at stake with the media code, it doesn't actually break 
the rest of search, does it, Natasha? No, it doesn't. But I think that's something that is getting lost in this debate is the different ways that Facebook and Google actually presently gain from having news media on their platforms. And I think in the purest sense, um, there's a much stronger case for Facebook to pay for the news in the way that the ACCC are conceiving under the code, right? If we just look at the business model of Facebook, Facebook monetizes time spent on site. So they're monetizing the length of that scroll because the longer that user scrolls, the more ad inventory they can have, the more they can make money from people posting engaging news links. And we've all been on Facebook and um, you know, been on, it's literally called the newsfeed and there's quite a more direct link in the way that Facebook uh, monetizes uh, news media links and journalistic content um, on Facebook. But Google have a slightly better point here in that the way that Google monetizes news is a bit more indirect. And I think there is like scope for the conversation um, that the code uh, you know, in terms of how the code might apply to Google. And the reason for that is that um, people, advertisers don't really place ads on news stories. So when you search like Storm the Capitol or Donald Trump election win, um, advertisers don't really place ads on those kind of results because they know that the news sites are going to win and they're going to, you know, take up page one of the search results. But they do place ads on searches like where do I where do I get my nails done or cafes near me. I've yeah. long been slightly confused about the conflation of Facebook and Google here because I do think like with Facebook it makes total sense to me that that they're subject to this conversation because so much of the growth of Facebook, no matter what they say about revenue, we know based on how Facebook have interacted with media organisations how important they treated media organisations to help build people's time spent on platform. That's the only reason why they did so many deals to try and get people to do you know preferential treatment on their platform. So we know that Facebook value valued that pipeline of content from news media. That I get. But the argument that previews of news articles on Google somehow leached a whole bunch of, um, of actual time spent on news websites, I, I don't know I entirely buy that. I think the media, uh, speaking about the media as a monolith, which I've always said is a terrible idea, but I'm going to do it <laughs> anyway. The media, I think,'s biggest issue with Google is that they took what used to be their number new number one revenue source, which used to be sort of things like classifieds and and banner ads. Mm. A lot of that money that used to be spent for media organisations like Nine and News, that money like ad accounts is now going to Google, right? That I understand, but I feel like there are, from where I stand at least, I feel like they're arguing at cross purposes. So, you know, if the, if they're complaining about losing revenue as opposed to losing time spent on the platform. Do you know what I mean? Like, I feel like they're arguing two different points and trying to have it both ways. Exactly. No, that's exactly right, Mark. There's a difference between, you know, losing advertising revenue and that decline over time, which has absolutely happened since Google's entrance into the market. But the really interesting thing is that news media companies haven't lost traffic. So in terms of actually having a relationship with a customer, sometimes that customer is paying, sometimes that customer or reader is not paying. They haven't lost that. And in that sense, people obviously still really value news media um, and there is still traffic, but in some cases, uh, media publishers have been really good at monetizing that or finding alternative ways to fund that quality information. Um, but in other cases, they haven't. And it is it is hard. It is a vexed conversation, but there definitely needs to be more nuance in the way that we approach how Facebook has, um, I guess, 
exploited is a strong word, but potentially exploited news media across its platform. And then how Google has um, related to uh, news media, because they, they are different things. And I think Google makes um, some valid points here, if done in a hyperbolic way, and if rolling out a campaign that exploits, there's, you know, a bit of dubious PR going on in terms of how Google are approaching this, but they're in, you know, that's, that's how they... Um, want to approach that, and that's that's fine. Google and Facebook are both ad-driven companies, and they get tremendous value because they watch what you look at. They both know. Now, by seeing what news stories you read or click through, they know that you're interested in that. So you might click through a tech review for a new laptop, and then, of course, Google or Facebook will sell you as somebody interested in a new laptop, for example. So they are getting a lot of information. They need fresh content, and that's the thing that news gives them. It gives them fresh content that gets you to come back every day. Now, of course, a lot of people think of the internet as Facebook. You talk to people and say, oh, I saw it on the internet. And if you actually drill down, you find out they think that the whole internet is Facebook. So Facebook was trying to make news native on its platform to further, you know, make it that that was the one place you went to. So for them to deny they're getting value out of it, and that's what they're saying, they're saying that uh, some of these things are going to cost them a lot. I don't think that's true. They are making a tremendous amount of money out of it all. One of the other things that Google objects to, though, is there's a requirement that they tell the news publishers about any changes to their algorithms. I think it was 28 days in advance mm-hmm. or any changes to policies. And they're saying, we we can't do that. It will slow us down. Uh, so that is perhaps a bit of an, o- an overreach by the ACCC too. I must say, like, I I agree that it's unreasonable given the way tech companies actually operate, but I also understand why the media are asking for it because the number of times media organisations have been absolutely screwed over yep. by Facebook summarily deciding to change an algorithm. Like, that. that... I agree. It's untenable Absolutely. for a tech company to do, but at the same time, I understand the 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 inner rage it stems from from a media standpoint. Um, I do just want to look overseas for a second here because there is a deal that Google did do over in France. Uh, it's a really interesting one, and I'm wondering, I guess, whether there are lessons that we can take from it. I mean, among the decisions that Google unilater- unilaterally decided that it would no longer display article extracts, photographs, and videos within its various services. So that's dealing with that idea, Peter, of you know, people just looking at the the summary and then moving on. But are there other aspects of that deal that, you know, perhaps can inform where we might end up with this? Yeah, well, Google did end up paying for links, and that's a precedent that I'm sure they don't want to have repeated in a market like Australia. I mean, Google does actually do things based on their threats. They pulled their search engine out of China when China demanded that they have control over censoring the results. So, you know, they they will do it. They did it in China. Um, They could pull search from Australia. I I personally doubt that they'll do that. But nah, China you know, is a whole different deal. They didn't have a foothold there. Come on. That's like a whole much more complicated situation than what they're dealing well, with Well, they still, the Chinese government, what they wanted was they wanted to be able to censor the results and Google said no. And so they were in Hong Kong. I don't know if they're still there. But uh, they did act on that. I mean, that's a big market and surely they'd prefer to be in there. Don't make me use Bing's, Peter. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what's lovely about Bing. There's no ads. I look at it, <laughs> yeah. I don't see any ads. It, Doesn't uh, that add result- like a giant like, red flag to you? <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, if once they come in and, uh, you know, if our Prime Minister thinks Bing's pretty good, uh, if we get Bing as the default everywhere. Of course, a lot of people don't realise that on iPhones for a long time, a lot of people just use search uh, through Spotlight. They were actually getting Bing results for a long time uh, without even knowing. Of course, the search result page on the web looks a lot like Google's one. There are rumours and evidence that Apple is building their own search engine and increasingly as people do searches on mobiles, they may not even know where the search results are coming.
coming from. And Google must be scared of that too. We'll do a proper shakedown of Bing some other time with you, Natasha. Uh, <laughs> download the show is what you're listening to. It is your guide to the week in media, technology and culture. One last topic to hit before I run out of time. Newsletters, e-newsletters. They seem like such a quaint part of the internet past, but they're making a return. And quite a few uh, services that allow you to set up your own uh, email newsletters have actually been snapped up by quite big social media companies. I know that there's one company called Review that allows you to publish your own uh, e-newsletters just got bought by Twitter. Why is there so much interest in e-newsletters, Natasha? I think... Um, you know, in terms of the radar, people do like a kind of quiet space online. Social media in some respects has become quite a messy, messy place to be. I I still love social media personally, but it it can be a bit of a mishmash. Whereas an e-newsletter is an author that you've selected um, on topics that you uh, like to read about. Um, And there's a kind of like calmer interaction um, going on there. And it's in your inbox. I think it's a there's a popularity rising um, in terms of the reader just because it is that kind of quieter space on the internet that's really personalised to you about topics that you're interested in. Yeah, I mean, the platforms, things like um, MailChimp and um, Medium and uh, and some of these allow authors to uh, market to people. They have subscription services. They allow you to pay for newsletters. I used to pay for one called Stratechery from Ben Thompson, which when I was doing uh, regular tech commentary, it, which was part of my work, I paid for me to pay to get that early information from a really good analyst. And of course, newsletters give you a very one-to-one relationship with your audience. Now, of course, they can be forwarded. And um, Stratechery used to actually say, yep, go ahead. If you think something's interesting for one of your friends, please forward this newsletter newsletter, but don't do it every day. Uh, You know, we hope that they'll subscribe too. So they can actually grow uh, through that sort of one-to-one spreading. So yeah, I think it's an old form, but the technology's got much better and you can segment your market and you can do targeted campaigns and that sort of stuff. And there is also some analytics in there, uh, provided the clients, the mail clients let them through. You can see if people have actually opened the, the newsletter, how many people have opened it, how many people have clicked a link in it, things like that. So it's got some good intelligence in there for selling other things as well. I must say I do like uh, the hand... Like, I think my problem I have, Natasha, is that I've subscribed to too many email newsletters and I reckon I open, I don't know, like a tenth of them. And I love them when I open them, the ones that I've got. But I feel like if... I I wonder if that pattern of behaviour is repeated with lots of other people that sign up to them, Natasha. What do you think? I I would say so. I feel it's like you can actually handle like three in your week. Um, And for me, that's Flux Finance. I like Scott Galloway's um, newsletter update. And also Mark um, Manson's um, Mind F Mondays is also really good. And I do genuinely (laughs) read them. Another one I've been recommended is The Hustle lately. But I've even noticed like once I subscribe to that extra four, five, six, seven, then they don't get opened and they don't get fully read. I think my brain can only um, handle one or two. But one or two, you know, that's a lot of opportunity um, for creators and writers and journalists and for someone like myself. It's uh, being able to potentially apply an more entrepreneurial mindset to how I write and create content. That is appealing. So if I launch a newsletter please sign up. You'll find out about it through my Instagram, Natasha Gillizzo. <laughs> and um, One other maybe I can look to take advantage of this. 
One other component to this, I guess, is the fact that in certain big email clients, so for example, Gmail, they've now started breaking up your, predicting where your content belongs. So is it primary mm. content? Is it social content? Is it promotional content? And I do think one of the worst things that ever happened to the e-newsletter thing, a category of content is that uh, the introduction of the promotion tab, because a lot of them, mm. Peter, just end up sitting over there. And I'm Literally opening or, it right now, worse. going, oh yeah, that's two weeks of stuff that I saw, saw and didn't open. Yeah, or it goes to spam. I oh, mean, yeah. it's up to Google to choose what what they you know classify each thing as. Yeah, I get a newsletter by Dave Weiner, who's the inventor of RSS and uh, arguably podcasting, and he's been running that for twenty six years. So this is an old form. It's a daily newsletter too, and it's pretty good. It's pretty good. Well, that is all we have time for on the show this week. Huge thank you to Peter Marks, uh, web blogger, as I'm consistent, uh, as I'm <laughs> That'll come with, back. Uh, and uh, software developer. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. My pleasure, Mark. And Natasha Gillizo from the Australian Financial Review. Thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Mark. Uh, really fascinating stuff. I hope to catch you next week. My name's Mark Fennell, and thank you for listening to another episode of Download This Show. <laughs> 